0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, amazingly, it's about two years now since COVID first began to be reported in the United States. And one day, when it's all behind us, we'll look back, I'm sure, at all the important stages of the pandemic's progress. And by that i mean the important pop culture stages we went through um there was tiger king there was the last dance there was squid game and now there's wordle and and i gotta be honest the first i heard about wordle was when people suddenly started posting their results on social media and i just see all these little squares and i'm like what the hell is this and then i also thought God, this is annoying. I'll, I'll never be one of those people. And then I started playing, and I <laughs> got a couple of words at the third go, and I thought, huh, okay, I might just share this. And, um, Eric, I'm one
1: of those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guilty of uh, the same over here, except I don't post my results often, only on the rare and random occasions when I get it on the second guess. Um, th- nice. in, that, in that case, I scream it from the social media rooftops. But uh, <laughs> But, yeah, same thing. At first, I was like... What the hell is Wordle? Uh, then my wife texted me and my daughter a link a couple of weeks ago, and instantly I was hooked. I, I find it a, to be a great way to get my brain moving first thing in the morning, you know, while the coffee is brewing. Um, it's Also, it turns out it's a good good way to see uh, what weirdos have Androids instead of iPhones, since uh, your tweets have the wrong colors for boxes, Kieran.
0: No, there's nothing to do with Android. It's because I am colorblind, and it has a colorblind option.
1: Oh, I, so whenever I see it not in like the greens and grays yeah. that I'm used to, I assumed it was Android people. Oh, no, oh all right. I no, just learned something. a little thing,
0: a high contrast option for people like me.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Good to, good to know that that's what I'm looking at. Um, I, I, I will take a moment here to brag that I am at 17 days played and 17 wins, and I haven't even had to go beyond the fifth guess yet. Uh, and And for those who haven't tried Wordle yet, who find... The tweets annoying, and uh, those of you even who say you're muting the word Wordle, uh, well, my God, if you find the tweets annoying, that's nothing compared to your two favorite podcasters going on <laughs> and on about it right now. Exactly. I have gone to the sixth guest once the,
0: a couple of days ago. That was a okay. bit close, uh, but yeah, I'm i I think I'm like eleven days in a row and with a, with eleven wins. Nice. But uh, I think the thing that I like about it. I guess it's the fact that it then makes you wait for the next one, yes. which. It's just so counter to everything else in the world now
1: that you actually have to wait for an opportunity to do something
0: uh, I, I think that's uh, I think that's actually oddly refreshing.
1: I agree completely my wife found an app where you can play a version of Wordle nonstop and I don't want I don't, I don't want to mess with it I, I like the idea of I do this for a couple of minutes a day and that's it um, and I actually just this morning I, I hesitate to tell this story but it's kind of too good not to tell. Um, so I'm in two different text threads, one with the other three members of, uh, of my family who live under my roof. We all uh, text our Wordle results to each other in the morning. And then I have one thread with my mom and my youngest brother, where we do the same thing. We share our results. And got a text from my mom this morning that began with the words that you never want to hear from your mother. I did party sperm. And then it continued on. And what she was saying was, my first guess was party, my next guess was sperm, and then I got to it on whatever guess it was. My brother and I both immediately reacted. Please never use the words, I did party sperm, to your sons again.
0: Oh, That's awesome. Fantastic. Ah, There you go. But you know what? Different pop culture phenomena come and go, but the Showtime Boxing Podcast... That's always with you. And um, on this week's podcast, we have a long and really entertaining interview uh, with broadcasting legend Rich Murata. And we think you're going to really enjoy that one. Um, we also have a few news items to look at, including a terrific fight that's apparently close to being agreed. But first, to Atlantic City, New Jersey, where on Saturday night on Showtime Championship Boxing, Mark Maxayo upset our BFF Gary Russell Jr. to win a featherweight Bell Eric.
1: Yeah, big upset, although one that a certain podcast partner of mine sort of saw coming as last week wore on. Uh, but a big upset and very strange fight as Magsayo ended the longest active male boxing title reign by majority decision. Two scores of 115-113 and one even scorecard of 114-114 as the Freddie Roach trained Filipino fighter improved to 24-0 and with 16 knockouts and took the featherweight title held since 2015 by Mr. Gary Russell, who slips to 31-2 and 2 with 18 KOs. Those who listen to our Money Punch podcast on Friday know all about Russell mentioning an injury during fight week, which helped you, Kieran, identify Magsayo by decision at plus 800 as a great value bet, whereas I assumed the injury couldn't be too significant and must shamefully admit, I still didn't see much chance of Magsayo winning, but... The injury was real and had a strange effect on the fight. It was an injury to Russell's right shoulder, which he clearly aggravated in the fourth round, and he became a one-handed fighter from there, and in many ways did a lot better in the fight after that, considering Magsayo seemed in control in the early rounds. There's a lot to discuss here, from the scoring to the striking size disparity to where these boxers go from here. But I'll start by asking you, Kieran, Given that Russell was so obviously hampered by his injury, is there much at all that we can take away from this fight? I mean, nothing definitive, I
0: think, Mm. and, and clear. Um... Look, when you have a guy who—it's one thing for a fighter to, to use an injury as an excuse um, or, or set himself up in advance to say, you know, as we wondered might be the case, mention he has an injury, maybe put it aside as, as a rationale if he does lose. But when you have a guy whose offense normally is based off of him throwing about 38 southpaw jabs around, and then over the last nine rounds of the fight, he throws three jabs— uh and none at all over the last seven rounds of the fight
1: yeah
0: he's hampered by that injury there's absolutely no question and and his entire game plan his way of fighting is completely hampered and thrown off um even so like you said he was able to keep the fight close on the scorecards by by throwing a, a diet of left hands um it, it was it was peculiar really um it wasn't just though i think about the injury one of the things that i also you know after we recorded that that money punch podcast gary russell then went and missed weight the first time right um which sort of added to that sense of gosh is this one of those occasions where everything's coming like this is going to be the night to face gary russell jr and you kind of wonder whether the entirety of everything you know the long layoff his father's health issues, which were clearly Mm -hmm. a factor in camp. Um, And then this injury, you know, all compounded to make him just less than we would normally expect him to be. Um, It was interesting. He was struggling a little, and, and you sort of alluded to this, he was struggling a little in those opening three rounds before he aggravated the shoulder injury. And was that just a case of him trying to get his rhythm back after two years out? Or did he already have this lack of confidence in his shoulder? Or was it a testament to, you know, like Sayo's size? Um, and his speed and his controlled aggression. And yet it is a bit odd that he did seem to really get into the groove when he knew he only had that left hand at his disposal. And I don't know whether it was, okay, can I can now stop worrying about whether I can throw a jab? Because I know I can't. So this is what I'm going to do. Did that confuse Max Io? I mean, there were times where he actually seemed to be enjoying steering Max Io onto that straight left over yeah. and over. And then... To his credit, Maxayo, I thought, after seemingly being sucked toward defeat, sort of got it back together again in the final third third of the fight. It was a peculiar fight. I I thought Maxayo would be more aggressive from the off, but he was quite controlled, which in many ways was a good thing, but almost ended up being a bad thing, if you know what I mean. He sort of was just about able to thread the needle between being so open that he he gave Russell lots of uh, opportunities to counter and being so controlled that he wasn't taking advantage of fighting a guy with one arm. Um, You have to imagine that a healthy two-handed Russell has his way with him based on what we saw on Saturday night. And if there were a rematch, I'd pick Russell to win. But when you're closing in on 34 years old, when you haven't been especially active for years and then out for two years, an injury like this feels like it might be more than an isolated incident. You start to wonder, well... Is this the beginning of the end? Is this the first injury among many? Is the body starting to break down ever so subtly? Is he paying the price for not being in that rhythm of fighting every six or or, or four months? Um, The one positive to take from this, I think, if you're a fan of Gary Russell Jr., is that he's going to want the opportunity to prove that this was a fluke and to get his belt back. As a consequence, this might finally be the year we get to see him fight more than once.
2: (laughs)
1: I suppose so. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, I, I I disagree about the way that... Who I would favor and, and the way that I view hmm. a rematch, just because of the evidence of those first three rounds or so looked right. so definitively like Magsayo was in charge. Um, I don't know, I, I've never seen anything like this, the way that once <laughs> Russell became a one-handed fighter, he almost immediately started faring much better. The one... Example that you think of is that Danny Williams fight from about 20 yeah. years ago where he became one-armed and knocked his opponent out with an uppercut, but that wasn't really like this. That wasn't him faring better once he became one-armed. That was him not giving up and then landing a perfect punch. Um I thought Gary Russell just looked lost the first 4 rounds. Mm-hmm. Might have mm-hmm. been like you implied there, you know, a little ring rust, being out of the ring so long that he was going to get his rhythm soon and just didn't have it yet. I thought Maxio looked tremendous at the outset. He was going to the body. He was aggressive, but not too aggressive. He was sometimes making Russell lead, which Russell prefers not to do. He was executing really impressively while Russell was still struggling to, to figure out what to do. And then the shoulder went, and you talked about the jab numbers uh, and the way they just fell off a cliff. But Russell was shockingly effective just avoiding most of Magsayo's punches and walking him into straight left hands or not even walking him into them. Sometimes just leading with straight lefts and then getting out of the way before Magsayo could really do much in return. I feel like Russell's injury might've been the worst thing that could have happened to Magsayo. You know, he's only going to get partial credit for the win. Whereas if the whole fight had looked like the first three rounds, I would be here on this podcast today hailing this exceptional performance from Meg sayo and, and talking about how much I underrated him. Now, I don't know. I'm not sure I did underrate him. He, he spent the last eight rounds against a one arm fighter doing almost all the wrong things strategically. And, and I thought losing the majority of those last eight rounds, um, I mean, we should talk about the scoring. I ended up with a 114-114 card, but a lot of the rounds were tricky to score. I felt at the end, like if I had to name a winner, Magsayo felt more like the winner. I thought those two 115, 113 scorecards, that's, that's pretty good. 116, 112 would have been fine too. I looked at the round by round breakdown. The judges agreed on eight of the 12 rounds, which is kind of a lot for a fight Mm. like this. And of those eight, they scored them five to three for Magsayo. So if you sort of take that as a baseline, it would mean anything from one seventeen, one eleven to for Maxio to one fifteen, one thirteen for Russell is conceivable. Uh, so those one fifteen, one thirteen cards for Maxio are right in the middle of that. I don't know if you had any strong opinions about the decision and whether a draw would have been reasonable in your mind. I could have lived with a draw, but felt probably the right guy got it.
0: I actually was a smidgen wider for Maxio in mm-hmm. the end okay. than everybody. Uh, I, I think I had it sixteen twelve, okay. but so yeah, sort of. But I agree with you that some of those rounds were quite hard to score. So I have a slightly hard time seeing it for Gary Russell. But, but 14, 14, 15, 13, yeah, I could see that.
1: Okay. we, we I feel like we should talk about the size disparity. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how Meg Sayo made 126 pounds. He looked like a welterweight in there. Yeah. Um, and you know that I'm usually the first to say size is overrated and isn't the most important edge in a fight. But it was just striking here. Uh, I kind of started feeling iffy about my Russell pick the second the opening bell rang and I saw them come to the center of the ring and it looked like uh, a, a gaddy gamash type of thing. Um, and it did appear from the outset that Russell couldn't hurt Meg Saio and size might have had something to do yeah. with that. Then again, you know, if he made the weight, he made the weight. I just can't recall too many guys making the weight and then looking three weight classes larger than, than their opponent <laughs> yeah. like this.
0: Yeah, no, agreed. It was it was actually quite striking, but I think that it wasn't so much just the size, although that certainly gave him an advantage. But I do agree with you that particularly early on, you know, what struck me was he was McSally was using that size well. Um, it wasn't that he was attempting to bully Russell in there, he was he was boxing extremely impressively, mm-hmm. but taking advantage of that size, the fact that he had probably a good reach advantage there, and he was, he was firing some really nice straight punches that, that were keeping Russell off, and he hurt him as well, I think. Was it the third round that it looked like he actually had him hurt? So, I mean, he, he definitely used those uh, physical strengths to his advantage, but it was very peculiar the way that he started to let it get away from him in those middle rounds. And, and I just wonder if it was just so confused. He'd never fought mm-hmm. a one handed fighter before right let alone a very good one like that and you know maybe the advantage there because russell was at a bit of a physical disadvantage it then became more incumbent on him to use his ring smarts and there aren't very many people who are as smart in the ring as gary russell jr and and maybe that was what enabled him to get back into the fight there the, the way that it did until maxio pulled away a bit
1: yeah i mean if russell had rallied just a little bit more and and pulled out the decision, we would be hailing this as one of Absolutely. the bravest, smartest performances we'd ever seen in a boxing ring. Um, but the the one other thing that I think we should talk about that um, kind of pulls a lot of the Gary Russell threads together here, uh, and you know, Jim Gray asked him after the fight, sort of brought up the idea of if you were injured, you should have pulled out. Um, I get why Russell didn't pull out of the fight. Um, He hadn't fought in two years. Um, So, you know, he he decided to go through with the fight and presumably believed he could win as long as the injury didn't get worse during the fight. Uh, That's what I would assume, even though he was talking about the injury beforehand, maybe, as you said, lay in the tracks for some excuses if he didn't win. But, you know, I I see why he went ahead with the fight, clearly knowing what we know now he shouldn't have. And it's his own fault for putting himself in this position. If he was a guy who fought twice a year every year, which yep. which still isn't all that active. But let, let's just use that you know, as the example of moderate activity. If he had a typical level of activity, he could have pulled out with an injury two or three weeks ago and postponed it and said he would look to reschedule for the spring and nobody would make a big deal about it. But because he hadn't fought in 23 months, because exactly. he's Gary Russell, there yep. was this added urgency on him to get in the ring and not pull out
0: yeah no absolutely you do wonder if as much as he seems to be a person who's very you know in his, his own bubble very content with his life living a very normal life away from all the back and forth and and, and angst and strum and drang of, of, of boxing you wonder if it filters through to him and he's aware that Boxing fans get on him right. for the fact that he doesn't fight very much, and that that is a criticism of him. Maybe it bugs him a little too. Maybe he would—he genuinely would rather be more active. But yeah, you—I have to agree with you there. That you have to figure that um, Manuel Navarrete is going to pull out of that <laughs> right. fight, <laughs> right? Because he knows he's going to fight again in a couple of months right. anyway. Um, you could just imagine the chorus of disapproval that there would have been had Gary Russell Junior pulled out of this fight, yeah. citing a shoulder injury. So yeah, that's you reap what you sow to some extent in that regard, I guess. Yeah. All right. Uh the Komaine saw a rematch at £140, pounds, actually slightly above £140, pounds, between Subriel Matias and Petrus Ananian, uh, when they first met in February 2020, Ananian recovered from an early deficit, getting battered a, a little bit in the early rounds to knock Matias down while into the ropes and sort of down and win a decision. Um, there was perhaps a brief period when it appeared as if Ananian might be turning it around again on Saturday night after a bright start from Matthias. But in the end, Matthias kept going. And although Ananian had his moments, especially in the first half of the fight, Matthias steadily beat him down, uh, dropping him for the the first knockdown of his career in the ninth. Um, but by, and by that stage... Ananian was starting to look the worse for wear, and in between rounds, the doctor took a couple of good looks at him, did not like what she saw, uh, called for the ref to stop it, and really, without any particular complaint uh, from either the fighter or the corner, um, Eric... We both picked Subriel Matias to win by stoppage, but your 10th round prediction proved laughably inaccurate (laughs) as the fight was stopped fully five seconds before the start of that round. Uh, What made the difference between this fight and the first meeting? Was it as simple as Matias just not fading over the second half of the fight the way that that he did the first time around?
1: I guess I'm not sure it was as simple as that but that was the bottom line was was through five or six rounds this was potentially following the pattern of their first fight and then it didn't at all Um, i i had matthias sweeping the first four rounds but then the fifth and sixth were struggles Uh, Ananyan had moments both rounds i thought were close enough to score either way he seemed to be gaining momentum and then matthias lost a point for a low blow in the seventh and even though it turned out the actual scorecards were not getting close It at least felt to me like they might be getting close. But then Matias totally took over from that point forward. I think the truth is that he's grown as a fighter over the last two Mm -hmm. years, gotten more experience, learned from defeat, beaten some good opponents in impressive fashion on Showtime and and gained confidence. Um, We had said that the first Ananyan fight was a little fluky, and I stand by that. But also, Mm -hmm. Matias has smoothed some rough edges and that has made that loss look flukier in retrospect. um, The seventh round was an early round of the year candidate, um, but it was Matias landing most of the big shots. And by the eighth, I was actually already starting to get concerned about the punishment Mm Ananyan was taking, even though the punches weren't necessarily rocking or or wobbling him. Um, And then it was body shots in the ninth that hurt him and set up the finish and his body language in the corner. Yeah was awful. I, I thought there was no debate that the fight needed to be stopped there. Although, maybe they could have waited for the bell to ring to start the next round, no, no, so no, it goes no, into no. the book six KO10. I I guess in a, in a sense, maybe it's just as good for me to have that in my pocket all year long. You know, whenever you're a point or two ahead <laughs> in our picks competition, I can remind you, you got lucky in Matias and onion and, and your lead doesn't really mean much. Um, Anyway, very entertaining fight. Uh, excellent win for Matias, who seems to be close now to a title shot at 140. And also, I'll just note, one of the most respectful fights I've ever seen. Both fighters touching fists with the opposite corner men during the ref's instructions. Very very <laughs> nice to see that. Um, okay, let's talk about the opening bout. A 10-round draw at a catch weight of 128 pounds between King Tug Nayambayar and very late sub Sakaraya Lucas. Nayambayar started fairly well uh, to the point that there was some confusion before round three about whether Lucas's corner might have been thinking of stopping the fight. I don't know exactly what was going on. Kind of a strange scene. But uh, Lucas started doing better as the fight wore on. Nyambar wasn't punching enough, a flaw we discussed in our pre-fight analysis. And then came a pivotal moment in round eight. Lucas landed a short, straight left hand. Nyambar's feet came out from under him. And referee Eddie Claudio ruled it a slip. And it made a huge difference. Uh, scores were 96-94 each way and 95-95. So Lucas would have won a split decision if you take away one point from Tug. Uh Nyambar is now 12-2-1. Lucas is 25-1-1. One one. Three questions for you, Kieran. Okay. Can we now safely say that there is no longer any doubt where King Tug's ceiling is? Uh, should Lucas feel aggrieved at not getting the decision win because of that call by the referee? And... I didn't describe the Claudio post-fight interview with Jim Gray. I'll let you do that. But <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, just how much of a train wreck was that interview? Oof. Yeah,
0: right. So taking them in order. Uh, yeah, I think by now, you know, Nyambayar is who he is, right? And who we suspect he is. There was a right. point toward the end where uh, Mauro Ronaldo on the commentary asked rhetorically, can Bayar find another gear? Uh, to which, without even waiting, I immediately jotted the answer on my notes. <laughs> no, <laughs> he uh, he never there's never another gear. Yeah. Um, he has his one gear. It's a pretty good gear. Uh, it enables him to do a lot of good work, um, but it is just the one gear. Um, we can complain and and protest till we're out of breath, and and urge Nyambiard to sort of step it up and show urgency and throw more punches and just change his pace during a fight. And he's just not going to do it. That's just not who he is. Um, he's a skillful boxer who simply just doesn't have it in him uh, uh, to jump on an opponent, even when he hurts him early, as he as he did you know with Lucas in round one. Um, He's, he's not going to change. And although I think many of us had reasonably high hopes for him uh, earlier in his career, at this stage, it seems as if he's going to be that high level gatekeeper, right? mm-hmm. a, a level below the champions, a contender who, you know, if, if you're able to beat him, then you're probably a good contender yourself. If you're not, you're going to fall short against him. That's just to it's Pretty. he's got some nice skills. He has some really nice short punches. I, I like his punch selection, but he just starts at one speed, and that's the speed that he's going to stay at. And and that's just always, you know, when, when he has to really dig deep, going to work against him. Um, to be fair, there were some mitigating circumstances on Saturday night. He had trained to face a southpaw, suddenly found himself facing an orthodox opponent who he'd probably never seen before. Um, and that opponent was tough and determined. Had nothing to lose, but on the other hand, Lucas, as the commentary team pointed out, had a long flight to get to Atlantic City and virtually no notice. He could have easily folded when the going got tough, and it got tough a couple times. Like I mentioned, he got rocked in that first round. I think again in the fifth or something, he was hurt as well, but he didn't. And, and not only did he come away with a moral victory. uh uh, he absolutely should have had an official victory because as you said that was a fairly clear knockdown um in the eighth round and look okay you can make the argument fair enough that eddie claudio missed it the first time because he was in the wrong angle the fighters were between him something like that that can lead to another discussion about whether instant replay or at least between rounds replay should be in play in more jurisdictions in boxing so that um that can be revisited during the round and the judges can be instructed no that was a knockdown call it a 10-8 round uh something to that effect but okay maybe he missed it in real time but that was the weirdest (laughs) most uncomfortable slowly unfolding train wreck of an interview i've seen jim gray seemed increasingly like to feel a little embarrassed uh, at what was happening there um and when, when Eddie Claudio after looking at the replay twice mm-hmm. and still insisting that he hadn't seen a punch land when he then asked to see it a third time and Jim Gray clearly was reluctantly asking the truck to play it a third time right. and still claimed that he didn't <laughs> see a punch i mean good lord i mean to give you a sense of how much of a train wreck it was well here's how instead of one tweet of the week this week i've got a collection and they're all about him okay and that interview i could do a dozen i've got three um <clears throat> showtime's own mitch abramson wrote uh uh referee eddie claudio being interviewed by jim gray is sticking with his original ruling says he didn't see the knockdown in real time this is like watching an episode of matlock where the witness is cornered and has nowhere to go oh man <laughs> um Ismail Abdul Salam simply posted a GIF of Mr. Magoo, completely misreading an eye test chart, with the <laughs> comment "Eddie Claudio" after multiple replays. Nice. Boxing Helena, on the other hand, had some pity for him. Uh, she retweeted the Showtime video of the interview and wrote, <laughs> she wrote, "Jesus, they even uploaded it. Whose wife did Eddie Claudio sleep with for the broadcast to shame him to death?" <laughs> um, yeah, that that wasn't. That was just very strange. I, I think, in principle, I like the idea of referees being accountable in this way. Uh, th- although that particular interval, interview made me question that position. And and I have to say, after that performance, I'm not sure any commission is going to be in a hurry to allow that to happen again anytime soon.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, the way that the interaction between Jim Gray and, and Eddie Claudio led to a point of G- Jim just saying, I guess we're going to have to agree to disagree. It was this like kind of microcosm of the whole gigantic thing we've been dealing with the last several years of if we can't agree on the basic facts, we can't really have a conversation, <laughs> right? So we, I'm looking at this video and you're looking at this video and I'm seeing a punchland, and you're saying you don't see a punchland. I guess we can't really discuss this any further. Um, it, it was bizarre and I guess... You know, there is this whole conversation about instant replay and whether, you know, New Jersey should use it and whether it would have changed the call here. And just seeing that, I wonder if we even get to the right decision after a replay, Uh, because the foot did slip out. Now, clearly a punch landed, but I suppose it is possible that a official watching that is going to say, yeah, I think it's probably a knockdown, but you can make a little bit of a case the other way and if we're following the rules from other sports of you need you know, unquestionable proof that we got the call wrong to overturn it, let's just mm. stick with the original call. I, I don't know that that's what would have happened, but I would hate to have gone through another situation like we saw in Vegas with the Bob Bennett situation with one yep. of the Maloney's where you know they waste a lot of time and end up not even getting to the right call. And that might have been where this would have ended up if we'd had replay. So it was so strange that (laughs) after the third time that he still didn't see it. I get missing it the first time because maybe you're looking at something else on the screen. But now, okay, we're going to show you again. Watch the fighter's hands because we're telling you there's a punch. (laughs) I don't know. So strange. Um, And one, one separate note about Eddie Claudio. I tweeted about this, but at the start of the fight... He gave the instructions and told him, you know, you can touch gloves if you want, and then ended with, see you later. <laughs> Cracked me up. It's still kind of cracking me up the next morning. See you later. He, he was just on autopilot, you know, <laughs> and I'm not sure what to say, and see you later came out. I, I'm tempted to start ending our podcast with a see you later. Uh, although, I, it, no, we should start them. <laughs> uh, there you go. That ma- That makes more sense, I guess, because, yeah, if I ended with it, it would actually be appropriate. Um, so maybe I can't, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm tempted to, do, you, you say, be safe, be kind and be well. And I say, see you later. But yeah, you're right. It, it fits. So from now on, yeah, we're going to open podcast with a see you later. That's more in the spirit of what Eddie Claudio did.
0: By the way, we haven't even talked about what happened after the end of the second round. I'm still not clear about that. Are you when he was
1: like, do you want to go on? Do you want to go on?
0: I I still I'm still not sure about that.
1: Yeah, I'm not either. It didn't seem that there was any reason the corner could have been thinking about stopping it. But that was sort of how it was depicted was that somehow Claudio had gotten some indication someone might be thinking of stopping the fight and wanted to inquire and make sure they were still going on. But yeah, it, it was not made clear to me at all.
0: Alright, before we move on, we should check in on our picks Contest scores. Uh because uh King Tug was originally supposed to face Vic pasillas we picked that contest, which didn't happen, so that no points there at all, of course. We both got Russell Maxio wrong, even if I got it right in our second <laughs> podcast right. of the week. Uh but we did both pick Matias to stop Ananian, although we didn't quite get the round right. Um you know close but no scars just <laughs> yep. just you know i'm sorry yep. so we each get two points for that uh, which means that early in 2022 we are tied at three points apiece all right all right, let's uh, turn to the news and look ahead to some fights that are or may be on the horizon. Um, and we begin with the week's uh, news main event. Uh, Mike Carpenter of ESPN reports that Shakur Stevenson and Oscar Valdez have agreed to terms to meet in a £130 pound unification bout in Las Vegas on April 30th. Uh, Eric, this has yet to be announced officially, but the signs are positive. Uh, we will, of course, look at this in greater depth as it nears, assuming that it does indeed near. But... Right now, what is your level of excitement, both for the quality of boxing you'd expect from this matchup and the level of entertainment as well?
1: Pretty high on both fronts. Um, This is one of those fights that is being signed pretty much the moment it became the logical fight to make. You know, no marination at all. Just, uh, okay. Valdez got his huge win over Burchelt. Stevenson got his big win over Herring. If indeed Javante Davis is done at 130 pounds, and I think he is, these are the clear top two in the division. Let's get it on. Um, In terms of the quality of the boxing, I think these are both guys who now merit pound for pound consideration. I don't have either quite in my top 10, but that's because Stevenson has only beaten one top tier opponent. I need to see more. And Valdez has the PET thing. I'm a little hesitant to put him in right now. Mm Mm-hmm. But they're at that ability level on the pound for pound fringes, both of them. Entertainment is a little more uncertain because Stevenson can be dull at times, although I think that's largely been a function of him beating overmatched opponents so easily that it's dull. Um, If he's in against someone like Valdez who could be a real threat to him, it could prove to be a sensational and dramatic fight. Um, but I'd say I'm a little more confident that we'll see high quality than I am that we'll see a thrilling scrap, but you know, the the needle is pointing fairly high on both fronts. Um, the only bad news about this fight is it's the same date they're talking about for Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor. Um, (laughs) so I hope a showtime doesn't also schedule a card that night, uh, and B ESPN and DAZN make a point to stagger their main events.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, all right, a few other upcoming fights to touch on. Sergei Kovalev is set to face Chinese light heavyweight Meng Fanlong on March 12th on Triller. Uh, we mentioned last week that Chris Colbert and Roger Gutierrez are slated to meet February 26th on Showtime. But we didn't know the venue. Now we do. It's the Cosmo in Las Vegas. We also know the co-feature and the opener. They are Gary Antoine Russell versus Victor Postol in a Crossroads super lightweight bout and Jerwin Ancajas defending his 115-pound belt against Fernando Martinez. Uh, following the postponement of Jesse Vargas versus Liam Smith as a result of Vargas testing positive for COVID, the main event of the February 5th Zone card will now be what was the scheduled co-main, the rematch between Srisaket Soren Visay and Carlos Quadras. Uh, the venue has been moved to the Footprint Center in downtown Phoenix, uh, and Notwithstanding your prediction, Kieran, that Tyson Fury's next fight would be wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, (laughs) negotiations for his mandatory defense with Dillian White are continuing, with both camps asking for the deadline for a purse bid to be extended into next week. Uh, Again, as I said last week, it's the weekly non-update update update (laughs) on that situation. Uh, Kieran, any thoughts on these various news items?
0: I actually saw Sergei Kovalev the other day. I was in LA for a week and he was training with Buddy McGirt um, at the Blue Moon Gym there. And as I saw him in the ring, I said, wow, Sergei looks thick. Um and sure enough when we talked to him he said, Yeah, I can't he can't do light heavyweight anymore. He plans to fight at Cruiser. He said he didn't know who he was gonna fight other than he knew it's some 17 0 Chinese guy, and I scoured the cruiserweight waiting rankings for a seventeen <laughs> or Chinese guy. It turns out I should have been scouring the light heavyweight rankings. I think this fight is actually gonna be at like 183 pounds, something like that, as as Sergei presumably uh, starts settling into cru- cruiserweight. Um let me see. Look definitely looking forward to uh, Colbert Gutierrez. And I see that whole card actually. Uh, that's a nice card and honestly Strisaket Quadras with no disrespect to either Jesse Vargas or my fellow Liverpool fan Liam Smith probably should have always been the main event yeah. for that card um, and so uh, I'm really happy that that's still going ahead Um, A couple of fights to look forward to next weekend uh, on ESPN. Showbox alum Xavier Martinez takes on Robinson Consisau, who recently lost to the aforementioned Oscar Valdez. And in a battle of cruiserweights, Ilunga Makabu meets Tabiso Machuno for the second time, uh, this time for Makabu's Alphabet Belt. Uh, That fight will be on Fight TV. Eric, what odds do you put at this stage on Macabu actually being the next opponent for Canelo Alvarez, after all. And do you have any thoughts on Conceição Martinez?
1: So I trust our friend Keith Ideck when he says it ain't going to be Canelo yeah. Macabu, and he's somewhat confident it'll be Canelo Charlo. Uh, and he's continued to say that since saying so on our podcast. I see no reason to doubt Keith's intel. So I'd put the chances of Canelo facing Macabu next somewhere under 5%, right? now. I would think. Um, as for Martinez-Conseição, but solid, you know, not not a drop everything kind of fight, but it's a decent matchup. We've enjoyed watching Martinez progress on Showtime, showed a lot of heart and toughness pulling out that Claudio Morero fight in 2020, and Conceição performed decently against Valdez. He's no stiff. Uh, this is actually maybe a pretty even fight on paper. Uh, One final note in the news segment, we mentioned last week that Raleigh Romero had posted on his Instagram that the investigation into accusations of sexual assault against him had been closed. We said at the time that we only had his own social media post to go on, but the Twitter user who goes by the screen name Brother Muzon uh, reached out to us to point out that according to a news report from January 11th, henderson nevada police confirmed that the assault case was indeed closed so thanks to brother Muzone for that correction
0: indeed so all
1: right uh joining us now is a man who
0: was once described by the los angeles times as la's most versatile broadcaster he was at various times a regular member of the broadcast team for three of the city's major sports franchises the kings of the nhl the raiders of the nfl and the clippers in the nba but he's probably best known his lengthy career in boxing which has spanned over 30 years on tv and radio he's also the founder of the nevada boxing hall of fame and we're both proud to say he's a good friend uh welcome to the showtime boxing podcast rich
2: murata hello guys hi karen Hello, Eric. It's good to see you guys again. What took you so long to get to me? <laughs> <laughs> we, we like to let things marinate, as they
1: say in this business, you know. <laughs> That's That said, you know, there there is never a bad time to have Rich Murata on your podcast. That's my philosophy. But it, I, it, it occurred to us that right now would be a particularly good time to ask you to come on when we saw a tweet that you posted on the occasion of Muhammad Ali's birthday a few days ago, it was a wonderful story about Ali showing you an act of kindness that enabled you to kickstart your budding broadcasting career when you were very young. So for those who didn't see the tweet or or for those who did, but would love a little more detail, perhaps you could retell that story, Rich?
2: It wasn't even budding at the time because I was not anyone or on the air or anything. It was just, it was at the very start. Uh, and I'll take you back. To, there's a little preamble uh, to that story, which began at my uh, university, Cal State uh, University, Northridge in, uh, in Southern California. And uh, I was a, a freshman there and I was just, uh, you know, not doing anything really, but taking a few classes. And I, in my English or speech class, I can't remember which one it was, but uh, we were assigned by the uh, teacher to give uh, a reading of a poetry uh, piece, to memorize it and then deliver it orally in front of the class. Uh, And so what everybody was picking all these famous poets and everything. I had an old record that Cassius Clay put out when he was, (laughs) when he was really young at about 64, 65, something like that. And I kept it and I used to listen to it all the time. And he did poems, he did some poems on there. And so I decided I'm going to do a poem by Muhammad Ali. And so that's, what I, I started with that and I did it. I memorized it. I delivered it in class. It was very animated. It was, this is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal of toxin, of a muscular punch. That's incredibly speedy. You know, so I went. I went through that whole whole poem and uh, the teacher actually was impressed. I got an A and the teacher was impressed. And after we were talking in the hallway and she said to me, "Uh, you know, you do pretty well with uh, speaking and your voice, et cetera. Why don't you do something with it? Well, I said, well, what? I don't know. Directly across the hallway from the speech class was the college radio station. And so uh, she said, well, how about, why don't you go over there and uh, do something in there? I said, all right, I'll try. And so from Reading that poem by Cassius Clay at the time that got me actually into the radio station where I was doing things like you know menial stuff, sorting records, the jazz from the classical records, etc. And I wasn't doing anything, and that leads to basically the story with Muhammad Ali of how he jump-started, as Eric put it, my uh, my broadcast career. So if you want, I'll go go into that. Yeah, please uh, do. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a fun story and everybody seems to like it, but I was working as a page at NBC and uh, Ali had come back out of his, uh, out of his retirement and forced retirement and he was going to be a guest on the Flip Wilson show. Now, I was a page at NBC working backstage on the Flip Wilson show, so I used to answer the phones back there, give directions to people, help people out and everything. Ali comes in and what I found out the week before that he was going to be on the Flip Wilson show. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to bring my little cassette recorder down here with me and see if maybe I could get a comment from Muhammad Ali. to And maybe they'd use it on the news or something at the, at the college radio station. and might help me along at the college radio station. So Ali comes in, the, the, the show's underway, I'm in the hallway, I'm answering phones, and Ali's wife, Belinda Ali, comes out of the dressing room, walks down the hallway, she comes right to me, and she goes, can you, you know, to ask me to where the restrooms are, you know, so I point her out, She comes back, and I, I grabbed her when she came back, I said, Mrs. Ali, do you think that I might be able to, I go, I'm, my name is Rich Marotta, I go to Cal State Northridge, I'm, I don't have a radio show, I'm not on the air, but I'd like to get an interview with Muhammad Ali, if I could, do you think that I might ask him a question, and then I would take it to the radio station and see if they could use it? So anyway, she said, well, I'll ask. And so she goes back in 20 minutes later. She comes out of Ali's dressing room and she waves me down to the down to the dressing room. And I said "And she goes, come on, come on. And so I go in and there's Ali sitting in a big giant chair and there's stars everywhere in there. Flip Wilson, uh, Roberta Flack, who was going to be a guest on the show that that night. And they were talking. I even remember Ali asking, saying, you know, when my next big fight, you should sing the black national anthem. And I, for some reason, that's stuck in my head all the time. Because I said, oh, well, come on over here. Sit down. What do you want? Who do you, Who are you? And I explained to him who I was and everything. And I was a complete nobody. That's the, that's the premise of this story. Complete nobody. I'm not on the air. Don't have a show. I'm, I'm nothing. And I'm dressed in a ridiculous page outfit, you know, from NBC. So he says, yeah, go ahead. Ask me whatever you want. And so I sit down, and in the midst of this uh, chaos before the, uh, before the show, he, he gives me a 15-minute interview, I a see. full interview on, on tape, which I still have, by the way. Wow. And he, he gives me that whole 15-minute interview, and I thank him. And anyway, the next day, I go back to school and the, bring it into the radio station. They're all excited about it. And they go this is fantastic and they go can you do other things like that and I go, well yeah i guess i mean i'll try and they said well we can give you a sports show and why don't you start it you can start it in a week or two weeks whatever it was and we'll have this interview 15 minute we'll give you a 15 minute show and this interview will be the first one that we use on the uh you know on the air and so that's how it started and so basically I had no broadcast career at the time, but Muhammad Ali, by virtue of giving me that interview, I put that on the air. They gave me the sports show and uh, we handed out leaflets and and hung them up around campus. Muhammad Ali next week on on KEDC. (laughs) And and, uh, that was my first interview that I ever did. It was the first show I ever had. First time I was ever in radio started at the top (laughs) with Muhammad Ali, the most famous man in the world. Wow. Clearly I've gone straight downhill. I I wouldn't say straight. It's been a slow gradual.
1: uh, erosion. (laughs) But
2: what I'm,
1: what I'm most curious when you're telling that story is, were you nervous at all? Because like, I remember the first, interview i did when i was like 22 years old working for the ring first time i called a, a boxer jesus chavez and i was i mean he was no muhammad ali but i was like nervous beyond belief to get on the phone with a real pro boxer at age 22 whatever you're in there with muhammad ali any nerves going or did or did you keep Absolutely. it all together
2: a totally a basket case okay. I mean I, I was just I was sweating you remember broadcast news yeah. it? It? A flop sweat coming out that was me that was me in there but you know what? It, it's so funny because I actually tried to lower my voice when I go back and listen to it and you can hear it uh, well Muhammad uh, uh-huh. you know, uh, Oscar Bonaventure you, know? <laughs> you can hear me trying to lower my voice you know because I was basically a teenager at the time so right. I mean it, but uh, uh, yes I was very nervous very scared but uh, it worked out couldn't believe it i had oh, to sorry. suck it up i mean i had to be i had to have a little bit of courage to walk into that room and, and right. sit down with uh, muhammad ali the
0: courage of youth <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> that's right usually foolhardiness but at least uh, <laughs> but at least it was it worked this time um
0: you know and then literally did go from strength to strength and, and what we'd love to do is just touch on Uh, a few sort of moments and and periods during your career. And and I think one that I'd really love to talk to you about is the time at forum boxing Uh, with you were there at a time where it was a magnificent era and you were in charge of the television broadcast there. You broadcast them during the nineties. You not only called some of the early fights of guys who have gone on to become Hall of Famous, but you ended up getting to know them pretty well as a consequence. Right. It was a really impressive roll call of fighters that you were working with back then, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I think the first famous one there was uh, uh, Chiquita Gonzalez. And uh, Chiquita was a fantastic little champion at 108 pounds. I mean, he was just an, a delightful guy, a mm. wonderful little guy, uh, incredible power in both, in both fists, got to do some of his fights. In fact, it's so funny because... A guy, I swear to you, about an hour before uh, we took the air here, about an hour before, I see a guy on Twitter saying, I, I like to put out some of my favorite fights. Here's one from a long time ago, Chiquita Gonzalez against uh, Sir Chatteron, right, which w- was actually the fight of the year and one that uh, Gonzalez actually Chiquita lost. And that was him losing his, his title, a fight that he dominated for seven rounds and then got mm. uh, stopped in the eighth. But uh, anyway, you know, that was the that was the beginning. And uh, prior to my doing those fights, I used to do little guests uh, things on the on the fight telecast um, because it was Tom Kelly and Ruben Castillo before me, but then uh, Ruben dropped out and I took over in about 91, uh, 92, somewhere in that area. And for that decade, basically the decade of the nineties, I was Tom Kelly's partner, and it was it was a wonderful time. It was and because those fighters would come through and and they were. Almost unfailingly great people, uh, you know, Barrera, uh, Juan Manuel Marquez, his brother, Rafael Marquez, Martin Castile. Uh, the, I mean, it, it was just a Mark Sharp Johnson. It was an, it was a, an incredible list of fighters who were produced basically by. Um, by forum boxing, forum boxing brought, for example, Barrera and Marquez here to the United States to begin their careers. I was really impressed the very first time that I saw Juan Manuel Marquez fight. Uh, he was it was at Caesar's Palace, and he was he was fighting uh, on our on one of our undercards. Basically, after the main event, which produced a knockout, Marquez came on and knocked uh, whoever it was out in, in, in a round or two. But I was completely blown away by what I was seeing. I didn't know him at the time. But I remember on that telecast, they said, we have got to see more of Juan Manuel mm. Marquez." And that was, just the, that was just the beginning. But Forum Boxing did a great job because they, they had two fights a month uh, on Monday nights, uh, 24 shows a year. And they were able to develop a beautiful kind of club fighting setting but ending up with world class fighters who they developed mm-hmm. they sold uh, they sold the season tickets to the to ringsiders so you know it's um, it's the only boxing that i've ever heard of that did that i mean they mm-hmm. because they had their year they would get their schedule they would put it out a m- month in advance and they and even though it was on monday night we were going up against monday night football during you know it, it, its heyday uh, at the time it didn't seem to matter because those people were boxing people those fans were boxing and foreign boxing never postponed a show they never and just think of that mm-hmm. in today's boxing landscape All right, right. <laughs> They never postponed a show. They had a terrific matchmaker who was there that whole time, Antonio Curtis. John Jackson was the the promoter and ran things. They had the good PR people like John Bay Rudy, uh, who was uh, was doing the uh, publicity. And they really, it was just tremendous because they did promote. You know, they really promoted uh, something I think is really missing from today's boxing landscape. But forum boxing was able to, by having its fights at the forum, and all those fights were on TV at the forum. But then they would branch out with another local station, KCAL in Los Angeles, where they would go to Las Vegas, and we'd go to, up to Lake Tahoe in Nevada, and we'd go to uh, Anaheim, and they would do other fights where a lot of these fighters fought. So it was a wonderful time for boxing, and it was I think it was the greatest gig I ever had. Uh. Well, I want to ask
1: you about the era just before that era, those some of the great names of the 90s you just mentioned. But I want to talk about the 80s because I believe you were ringside for all of the fights involving the four kings, Hagler, Leonard, Duran and uh, Tommy Hearns. Kieran and I talked plenty last year about the Showtime docu-series on those guys, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that series. Uh, Anything new that you learned that you didn't know before? Anything from the doc that maybe you took issues with? And and just in general, what what kind of memories did it bring back?
2: No, the documentary, just touching on that first, I loved. And I loved how they took a a guy each time, basically, and centered it around that. And I love that it wasn't just put in chronological order. It was really well done. It was definitely done. And I uh, definitely appreciated all the effort that went into that. And it's a great time to look back on. I don't think I ever realized uh, how exciting that was, that uh, that outdoor era, which I really miss right now, you know, that uh, and have for a while. But that outdoor era of the 80s, uh, those Caesar's Palace fights, were just they, they were incredible. And each time there would be one of these fights involving the four kings there. And I think they all fought with the exception of Leonard Duran one, they all fought they all fought each other in, in Vegas. Right. And so each one I would try to go up. I remember when I first started going, I think at uh, Leonard and Hearns, I went up like, you know, the day before two days before. So I got but then each time. I go, I've got to spend more time, you know, and, and, and I would go up there and it was like three days before and then four days and then a week, you know, <laughs> spending a whole week for like Hagler, Le, Hagler, Leonard. And I think I spent a whole week at Holmes and Cooney too, which was not the Four Kings, but nonetheless, same era, also at Caesars Palace outdoors. It was such a special time. I don't know if something like that could be um, uh, recaptured again in boxing because you had four distinct personalities four different styles of, of of fighters, four different humans who approached their own humanity and and, and their philosophies and life, et cetera, uh, differently. It was incredible and in how it would somehow come, you know, come together and it would all work. It's like the Who, right? The band The Who. Mm-hmm. Four different guys all kind of doing their own thing. It doesn't seem possible that they could possibly mesh together, but they do. And it it, it did strictly because of their unbelievable superior boxing. All those four guys, they're all all all-time greats, all-time greats fighting each other in the course of of a few years in multiple occasions. So it was a wonderful time. I love being there. The first, uh, uh, the thing is, is I I cu- I predicted most of those wrong. I really thought <laughs> in that first uh, Leonard uh, Hearns fight that there was just no way that that uh, Leonard could hang with with Tommy Hearns because of his size, et cetera. Tommy had knocked out one of LA's greatest, Pepino Cuevas, in in like devastating fashion in a couple of rounds. So I was really good at. Picking these fights wrong <laughs> <laughs> all the time, and tried to convince people I was some kind of analyst by getting them almost unfailingly <laughs> incorrect. Well, you mentioned
1: the, their distinct personalities. I'm curious if there was one of the four that you particularly enjoyed interacting with. I assume that you, you know, got to got to hang out and and interview and chat with them all a bit over the years. Was there was there right. one who really stood out to you?
2: Well, if if you're talking about the whole. Uh, I would say Duran is the one that, mm-hmm. that probably stood out out to me. And, you know, and uh, going to see him train and then being, uh, you know, around his fights and, uh, uh, you know, and, and in talking to him, I'd always need an interpreter, you know, naturally. I'd ask him if he could do it in English and he'd go, no, no, English, piss, piss. <laughs> and so, but he was, he was such a fantastic, um, I guess it was bordering on arrogance, but it was like it was just like this fantastic belief in himself that he was better than than everybody and that he could do it. And he knew what he was. You know, all those guys had that sense. But Duran's, I think, personality, the fact that he was, you know, a Latin fighter, too, and the others, you know, were American fighters uh, made him, I think, you know, stand out to me. Uh, you know, immeasurably, really, in a, in a different way than the other three did. You know, Hagler, of course, was uh, you know just that blue collar guy, and it was all business when you were around him. And 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 I can't remember having a laugh with with him. You know, pre <laughs> in, in fight, uh, you know, at times, Leonard was so easy to. Uh, to talk to, and because he was so friendly, and uh, he really, you know, I remember once Ray said telling me, you know, it doesn't hurt to be kind to people, and have a smile, and, <laughs> and to be and to be nice. And Hearns, of course, I mean, it was it was the same the same kind of deal. But I just loved interacting with those guys, going to their fights, being part of that whole era. It was something else.
1: And and I've got to ask you just quickly about Hagler Hearns specifically because everyone who was ringside for that fight seems to have a story of, of how they experienced it. What especially that first round? What what are your memories of of watching that insanity unfold?
2: My memory of of the first round of Hagler Hearns is that that's the uh, one of the few times that I ever made uh a a significant bet i bet a hundred dollars at 15 to 1 odds that hearns would knock out Hagler in the first round wow and for like about 40 seconds 45 (laughs) seconds (laughs) (laughs) but when the first round was over uh and i was only in the auxiliary press section for that which put me up on the last row of the of of the caesar's palace outdoor stadium Mm. but it didn't matter i mean you know I was there, and I was experiencing this unbelievable, uh, the three minutes of rage. And uh, I remember I was, like, breathing heavy, and I grabbed my heart. I really did. True story. I grabbed my heart after the first round. <laughs> I didn't know, because I feel it was like it was racing, you know, and I, uh, and I felt like I'm, I'm breathing heavy here. I can't believe this. And uh, that, was the, that was the main thing. I think I knew you, uh, you could tell that if he didn't get stopped on cuts, you could tell by midway through the second round what the outcome was going to be. But it, mm. it was uh, it was unbelievable. It was eight, I think, what did they call it on Sports Illustrated? Eight minutes of fury on, right. on their, cover, their cover story. And uh, so that's how I remember that, Eric. So that was a great
0: fight that just went from one to ten straight out of the blocks. Another right. truly great fight that sort of built and built and built. Uh, that you were inside for and i was there for as well was diego corrales jose luis castillo and i think you were calling the international broadcast for that right i was And i'm curious as that fight went on when did you begin to realize that this was going from a good fight to a very good fight to a great fight to something truly truly exceptional
2: you know the way you just phrased it there is exactly what happened during the course it was never a slow fight or a poor right. fight or it, it started off at a very good pace those first three rounds were really hot and they were fighting inside there was a lot of really meaty blows that were being thrown but about the fourth round it started to get really intense i remember after in the sixth or seventh round i i i said that uh this fight is actually beginning to get hard to watch mm. and it was uh, it was that same kind of uh, it was a better fight than but it was the same kind of like uh, uh brutality that you remember when uh, i think it was murky sosa and prince charles williams had a fight and it stopped well, because they stopped. both fights yeah. were taking too much damage and i thought that it might be that same kind of outcome that that night but but from the seventh round on i thought it was like already the fight of the decade you know it was just Every round was so intense and they took turns hurting each other, but they couldn't knock each other down. And then of course the finish and the last, the last round is what put it over the top. And in my opinion, um, I think it's shared by some people. I think that Corrales Castillo one is the greatest fight of all time. And I know it's the greatest fight I've ever seen. I've seen a lot of fight films of a lot of great, of a lot of great fights. And I would put it up there for the total rounds of action uh, to me it, it's it's uh, it's an incomparable night of, of boxing it was a great thrill to be ringside uh, you know you know for that one because that was uh, brutality of the likes but it was beautiful at the same time yeah. beautiful savagery you know uh, yeah. in terms in in a boxing term that i've terms that i've ever seen
0: yeah uh, of course you knew diego i knew diego a, a little as well um Looking back on it and looking at what happened to him subsequently, do you get a little bit of melancholy sometimes also when you think about that fight and look
2: back on it? Well, sure, but it, not so much the fight, but just him. Yeah, you know, I'm hard, still heartbroken about about that. Diego and I developed, as he did with many people in the you know in the media, you know, really terrific relationship. And he was he was a great guy to have on on uh, my radio show which was in its heyday at that time I was on from 1999 to uh, 2010 or 2011 doing uh, a box, the boxing radio show rich Murata's neutral corner at the time diego would come on all the time and the funny thing about diego was he didn't want to just come on, because I would have a fighter in, or even, Karen, you remember, you were on the mm-hmm. show. You'd come in for a segment. you do, you do uh, 10, 12 minutes, and, the, and, and that was it. Diego always wanted to be on the whole two hours.
0: <laughs> wow.
2: He wanted, he wanted to talk to the fans. He wanted to interview the other fighters, and wow. he wanted to give his opinions. He just loved to talk, you know. He really loved to talk. And so when he would come on, it would be for the whole time. And he actually even came on after that Castillo fight he came on the following week the fight was Saturday the following Saturday he came on once again with us um and we we did our show live from Mandalay Bay the following week as well and he came on and he was still beat up and his Mm. wife and Michelle and he came down to the studio and he came on and he did he did the whole show with us again and even even fans were calling up and accusing him of you know cheating in the fight by spitting out his mouthpiece and I, you know, I'm going, do you want me to cut him off? And, no, no, let him talk. Let him talk. It's fine. And and that's how, you know, but that's how Diego was. He loved interacting. He loved talking. That, mm-hmm. that was it. I, I, I wish he could have a podcast today, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. he, he had so much fun with his fans and with media and, uh, you know, and the relationships that he developed. Uh, I miss, miss him very badly. We pranked him one time. We had Joe Goosen come on a week before one of his fights. We were up there in Vegas and uh, and uh, uh, Chico was on our show and Joe Goosen disguised his voice, dipped it into a falsetto, etc. You know, you used to beat me up when I was in junior high school. I hate you. And he's going, who are you? You know, you remember me. All right. And he, and he did this every for about 10 minutes. He had Diego, he had the going. and finally broke down laughing. And uh, and that was one of the memorable instances with uh, Chico Corral. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> So another fight that uh, I want to ask you about, not quite as good as Corrales Castillo, but still a, a pretty darn good fight and a, a huge historical event. Um, and you mentioned it uh, earlier in the in the conversation, Larry Holmes against Jerry Cooney. Um, race was a huge part of the promotion. Some might even say racism. Um, I'm curious what it was like to be at that fight. And, and, and around during the buildup to the fight. Do, do the, the racial elements stick with you, Rich or, or, or is it more the actual fight that you remember?
2: Well both are memorable, but I think you know the, the racial elements uh, that, that existed for that fight really kind of set it apart. Um, it was really tense uh, and for days leading up to the fight, it was really tense just around the promotion to be around what was going on and you know at, at Caesar's Palace and of course, I think, you know, part of this uh, feeling was encouraged by, uh, by Don King, I think, the, the promoter, because it was selling tickets and the fight was becoming an absolute monster. And I don't know if you, if, uh, you remember this, but they actually built in the back of Caesar's palace, not the normal um, uh, stadium where we where we watched uh, Leonard fight Hearns and where uh, Duran fought Hagler, etc. Uh, it was a different stadium right next to that, out in the parking lot, and it was a stadium there that instead of holding like fifteen thousand fans, like the outdoor stadium normally did at tennis, it held over thirty thousand. It was thirty one thousand that night, mm. and it was it was an incredible uh, build up, and uh, there were many. Although Holmes was favored, it wasn't he wasn't an overwhelming favorite, and there were many picked uh who picked uh you know Jerry Cooney to win the fight cooney had been on an impressive uh, run of knockouts although against uh, lesser than stellar opposition in some cases but that night of the fight i mean it was just it was just really super tense and and that whole at, attitude around the uh, stadium it just almost seemed like one of impending doom of some, you know, of some type. It was a different type feeling. Right. It's hard to describe it, but it was certainly was a different type feeling than I ever felt at a fight. And I, I would hasten to say that I haven't felt uh, anything like that since then uh, either. Although at the at Tyson of Tyson's fight, you, you had the kind of a uh, impending doom feeling. And certainly after the Holyfield, the bite fight, you know, letter right. uh, chaos. But that 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 feeling. On uh, that whole White Hope thing and the whole thing of introducing Cooney first and, and, and not giving uh, Holmes the respect that he should have gotten in that case of being the champion. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, who came down the aisle with Larry Holmes? Jesse Jackson. You know, I mean, that, was, it was, that whole thing was, was, was built not only on the, the fighters and their, their greatness in the ring, but also on the, on the racial elements. So it all worked hand in hand to produce a, a, a pretty incredible line.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure you've spoken with both Holmes and Cooney in these years afterward. Do you, do you know how either of them sort of feel about it all with the passage of time?
2: Well, they're kind of sorry about it, I think, you know that that, that, it, that it turned out that way. They're great friends now as you you know, as you know, and it's it's kind of fun to see them together or hear them together. But, uh, you know, uh, and I kind of like that aspect of it. You have guys like that that could be such bitter rivals. We find that often in boxing, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, can get together afterwards. But I think they, they regret it a little, but at least from the home standpoint, maybe that that's what was necessary or, or that's just, you know, what promotion, promotion was in that day. I know that there was, there was some, a lot of bitterness, though, going around on both sides at the time.
1: Well, speaking of guys becoming friends after it's all over, and and you had talked about some of your losing bets, I could have lost a lot of money betting that Eric Morales and Marco Antonio Barrera were never <laughs> going to become friends. That's That's got to be the shocker of all shockers among those.
2: That was one I, I felt would never happen. I mean, yeah. I, that, there, there was just no way. I mean, those two guys really hated each other to the point I remember where... Uh, Barrera slapped Morales after one of their press conferences, they got into it, and the, the, the enmity between the two was real. It wasn't, it wasn't forced, it wasn't uh, fake, it was uh, for real, and it lasted for years after, after their incredible uh, rivalry. Um, the fights were sensational. All three fights uh, were really fantastic all timers, although the first one was, you know, I think that that's that was the real gold standard in the, in the three fights. Uh, you know, I thought Barrera won the, you know, won the first fight. I was able to broadcast the, the second uh, the second fight and the third fight between the two, which I was to the international audience. Those also were really interesting, super good fights. Uh, it was a great uh, rivalry and it, amazing. You know, uh, We had them at the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame sitting right with, next to each other. They signed autographs for, for the fans, sitting together by themselves, together, and just having a great time with each other because Barrera was inducted into the hall. And then a couple of years later, Morales was inducted into the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame. And Barrera gave the presentation speech for Eric Morales and presented him with his awards, you know, at the, at the induction dinner. So it was quite touching uh, yeah. that way. We've done a lot of that rival, rivalry thing. You know, Mike Tyson inducted uh, Evander Holyfield at our, uh, at our uh, Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame. Ray Leonard inducted both Tommy Hearns and Roberto Durant. So, you know, those, those are the kind of, the rivals united, I think, is, is really something in boxing. It, it has never worked out with uh, Vinny Pazienza and, and uh, Greg Haugen. But, and <laughs> Pazienza says it'll never happen, but, <laughs> but most of them have.
0: Um, so we've done a lot of wandering down memory lane, but I'm curious what you feel about some of the main fighters in the sport today. Guys like you know, Canelo Alvarez and Tyson Fury, they're probably the two biggest stars in the sport internationally now. And, and whether there are any other fighters who you've been watching who intrigue you?
2: Uh, well, of recent vin- vintage uh, Campos uh, mm. definitely intrigues me. I think I see a spark of potential where he could be something uh, very special. There, mm. he's got the he's got the talent. He knows how to connect with fans. He loves to promote, you know. Yes. And I, 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 it seems to me, he uh, he's a he's an outstanding fighter. He's got all of the elements that I can see, and we know he can beat good uh, opposition. And he did it basically by outthinking and outfighting. Uh, uh, Teofimo in their, it, you know, in their fight. Although Teofimo got some unbelievably horrible advice from his uh, uh, his dad in the corner, who gave him a completely misleading uh, view of how the fight was going. I mean. he... You know, Teo would come back to the, the corner after each round and, and his dad would be telling him, you won that round. And I, I'm sitting there watching the fight. And going, what is he talking about? You know, <laughs> Winning, he won that round. Are you crazy? And so afterward, naturally, Teo uh, Fimo, he felt that he won the fight because his dad been sitting there <laughs> telling him after every round, oh, you won that round. You won that round. But um, Cambosus. getting back to Cambosus, I think he has all the elements to really be special. And I hope, I hope that he is because, you know, boxing always needs those special, you know, those special guys. Um, the two you mentioned, uh, Canelo and Tyson Fury, I have to admit I was wrong about both of those guys. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, hit, I've hit quite a few of the guys right coming up, but Canelo, I thought, was a fraud when he was starting. When I first started seeing him in the, the United States, I think I saw him fight Cotto's brother, was it? The, right. The, yeah. And he was—I mean, he nearly got KO'd in that yep. in that fight. I'm going, this guy—they're making a big deal out of him because he's a redheaded Mexican, you know, and it's, he's got the, the cool nickname Canelo, which means cinnamon. And they're they're promoting a, a guy basically here who uh, who you know he, he's a novelty act, right? And so I that, I kept that a viewpoint of Canelo for quite a while. And I remember I really, I really turned around and how I looked at him and felt about him on the night that he fought uh, Sugar Shane Mosley in Vegas. I was ringside for that fight. And uh, although Shane had seen his better days, days by then, I was really impressed by what I was seeing from Canelo in that fight. And I remember sitting with a couple of uh, guys at ringside, uh, a couple of talk show hosts, JT the brick and uh, Tom Looney and, and, I was saying already midway in the fight, I go, I, well, I think I may have you know severely um, <laughs> underrated this you know, Canello. He's really much better than I thought because I'm seeing things from when you're when you're sitting there at the fight, you can see things, you can see what they're doing, how they're working, what tricks they're they're laying, traps they're laying for uh, you know for their opposition, and how they take control of the ring, et cetera, which Canelo did that night. Um, I was really impressed with him that night. It's gotten grown more and more and more. He's turned out to be, he is now entering that kind of all-time great uh, you know, category because he's certainly up there now with, uh, with the top five or six greatest fighters in uh, Mexican box, boxing history. And those guys are all, all-time all greats, Chavez, Moreira, uh, Morales, Olivares, um, Marquez. So, you know, I think he's entered into that strata. The other guy I was wrong about was Tyson Fury. I just thought he was a big, dull blowhard for, uh, you know, a long time. And, you know, when I started to turn on to Tyson a little bit, in fact, after he fought Klitschko, I thought, geez, that is the dullest, worst fight Mm -hmm. I've ever seen. You know, I I hated it, you know, but then I I started listening to him and paying attention to his story about depression, about, you know, falling out of shape, getting back into shape before he was going to fight Deontay Wilder the first time. And... I saw, these, I saw a number of interviews with him uh, regarding not only his boxing, but regarding his own personal issues and battles. Um, and I, I noticed a great humanity from, uh, from him, which I really started to like. And I remember before he fought Wilder, you know, um, I picked him to beat uh, Wilder uh, in, that, in that fight. And I thought that he did beat him. But, you know, beginning with that time and growing, you know, with each succeeding fight, I, I really think Tyson Fury is—he's a tremendous fighter. He could have fought in any uh, could have fought in any era of heavyweights and been at least competitive with the—you uh, know—with the—with the best uh, heavyweights. I mean, um, I don't know if he's the best British heavyweight. I think Lennox Lewis would have would have probably beaten a, a Tyson Fury, but—but but nonetheless, I mean, he's a—he's a, he's a re- the real deal as far as I'm concerned, and he's the best guy out there now over Anthony Joshua. And, uh, you know, obviously Deontay and, and, and the rest of the heavyweights that are making their presence known right now. To me, he's far and away the best.
0: My feeling on his on, on Fury absolutely is the same as yours. I didn't used to get it. I didn't get a shtick. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't like it. And I think even on on. On this podcast or on a previous version of our podcast, I think I even said words to that effect and didn't think much of him. And, yes, the same as you over that same time period as he's talked about mental health and then as he's shown us what he can do in the ring. I'm absolutely the same same path as you on that one.
2: Yeah, he's he's really a good solid fighter and he can box and he can punch. Sometimes his defensive uh, abilities are, are uh, in a really good. Quite remarkable. You get him into a corner and you're throwing punches yeah. at him and he's, he's moving his body, that whole upper body movement, shoulder, swinging his shoulder side to side. It's impressive to watch. And he proved he could be a big, rough dude in there as well, yeah. you know, yeah. which he yeah. was in the last two fights with Deante. That fight that he got cut, who was it? Otto? Uh, Otto
1: Wallin, uh, yeah. right.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> he was a mess. Yeah, and, and he came he came close to losing but he he showed big heart and character in that fight as well so you know i kind of like all aspects of tyson fury right now i think he's really good for the sport
1: yeah, yeah. all right well let, let's finish up talking a little bit more about uh your baby the nevada boxing hall of fame which which you mentioned a few minutes ago um before we know it it'll have been Ten years since you uh, welcomed the first class of inductees. Uh, how is the hall doing now, and and when is its uh, next slate of inductees getting announced?
2: Well, it's 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 a really rough time because we were impacted by the pandemic. You know, um, the year before, uh, in the year before the pandemic really struck, we finally got a museum in Las Vegas. And we're able to uh, gather a lot of artifacts and wonderful, uh, um, uh, not just souvenirs, but real museum pieces for boxing fans to come and see. And we had we had it open by for about nine months before we we had to shut it down right after the after the pandemic hit. You know, they were closing down the malls. Everybody was going into lockdown we 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 were hoping to hang in there but but we couldn't with the museum. So we have been unable basically and uh been unwilling really to reopen it again until we can be sh- relatively sure that people are going to be you know, safe. I mean, I, we don't want right. people coming in there because we do a lot of things and, uh, you know, we hold events in within the museum itself that are not necessarily part of our induction or our big fan events. We're, you know, fighters and fans are getting together or Morales did a signing in there. Uh, Mikey Garcia did a signing in in there. You know, a, a lot of fighters come together and would hang out, you know, in in our uh, Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame Museum in Las Vegas. So we didn't want to take a chance. and We've still been unwilling to take a chance. We're talking to people about possible new sites for our museum. And we were unable to have a, a an induction uh, uh, weekend last year. So we, you know, we have a class that's ready to be inducted that was in, that was announced the year before, but we're hopeful within the next month or so that we will uh, that we will announce another, uh, uh, an additional inductee class. And then we'll have when we are able to, but we're not going to, we're not going to put our champions in danger and all these legends of boxing in danger and, you know, have a mass uh, meeting with fans because believe me, when our, our events are close up, I mean, there's a lot of handshaking, hugging <laughs> in Duran's case, kissing everything. <laughs> <laughs> so you know we don't we don't want to take a chance but we're hoping that this is the year that we we finally break out of that again and we can announce a new induction class we'll do them together and have an induction ceremony and an induction weekend we do a whole induction weekend um uh, and and have that later this year
1: all right so we'll add add that to the as one more good reason on, on the a lengthy list of reasons to hope that we are coming out of the last wave, last significant wave yeah. of this pandemic. Right. We have our fingers but crossed we, and that's one more, one more great reason is so that uh, the Nevada hall of fame can uh, get cranking again.
2: Me, uh, but believe me, we really want to, we're very, uh... You know, we get impatient sometimes. You know, Michelle Corrales is who lives. Uh, Michelle Corrales Lewis is she? Uh, that's her uh, name now. She remarried after Diego, but uh, you know, she runs it on a day-to-day basis now as president of the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame. And so, you know, she's uh, she's talking to people and engaged right now. As far as getting a new museum and also with hotels, et cetera, as far as getting a new home for our induction or the same home for our induction uh, for for this upcoming year. But it's hard to plan anything out. And, uh, you know, it, it, it makes it a very difficult situation. But keep your fingers crossed and hopefully we'll be back at it this year.
0: Awesome. Rich, it has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Uh, I absolutely loved this. Thank you very much indeed. It's good to be the other way. I've been on your show. Now you've, you know, you get to be <laughs> right. on the other side of things. So That's <laughs> right.
2: Thank you, Karen. Thanks, uh, Eric. I appreciate it. Great being with you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Our pleasure. Great. Thank you, buddy. All right. Many thanks indeed to Rich. That was a yeah. great conversation. Really, really enjoyed that. And we conclude this week's podcast with this week's top five challenge. And it is prompted by that conversation with Rich. A lot of great names mentioned over the course of that interview. Barrera, Morales, the Marquez brothers, Chiquita Gonzalez. But the name I want to focus on is Larry Holmes. Uh, Holmes was undoubtedly one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time. Plenty of folks would put him in the top five, in fact. Uh, But he came to the fore in the shadow of Muhammad Ali. He was followed by the explosiveness of Mike Tyson. So he's respected rather than adored or even frequently recollected. So your task, Eric, is to come up with the five defining Larry Holmes fights, the fights that show to those who may not know just why Larry Holmes is one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time.
1: Okay, this is this is interesting. I like this. So Larry Holmes was the heavyweight champion of the world at the moment at which I became aware of boxing in the in the okay. early eighties, you know, and uh so Ali Ali was done and uh Larry Holmes was fighting on on TV and my dad says, Yeah, that he's that's the heavyweight champ, Larry Holmes. So he was the first heavyweight champ I knew. Um that said, I wasn't following his career closely as it was going on. Obviously I know all about it uh, in retrospect but this will be a sort of sort of a mix of what i already know and doing some additional research to make sure i'm not missing anything uh, as i go back and uh, come up with the five defining larry holmes fights i can do all that. Right.
0: okay that will do it for another edition of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney we'll be back next week uh, to look ahead to the strisaket quadras rematch as well as keith thurman against mario barrios chris eubank jr against liam williams uh, until then thanks very much for listening Be safe, be kind, be well. I'll see you later.